Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing fine, Mr. Byrne. How about you? Well, I'm pretty good. It's a gray day, but we've got some real brightness for you. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts and The Toy Guy. And today... I am really excited because we are talking to Aaron Muterich, who you all may know as Crazy Aaron. He is the putty guy. And we're going to be talking about COVID putty and making it through 2020. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Richard. So pleased to be here. It's great to have you with us. Do you go by crazy or Aaron or crazy? (laughs) Some people just call me crazy. I'm very comfortable with that. Well, Tell us, tell us your story. How did you get to be crazy, Aaron? Well, gosh, it's it's so long ago, 22 years now. Uh, I hate to admit it, but I was a software engineer and coding away and found myself very fidgety and having a hard time sitting still, waiting, you know, five seconds here for a file to upload and 10 seconds there for code to compile. And so I started playing with all these different toys, trying to recapture my youth. So, you know, I had a slinky and I had a drinking bird and I also had this little egg of putty. And my initial feedback on the putty was, gosh, I am playing with this and I don't even realize it. Like it's in my hands all the time. So I really liked it, but I wanted more. I wanted, I had big grown up man hands now and um, (laughs) realized that it was actually designed for small children. And so I put a whole bunch of them together and then my piece started to shrink and I couldn't figure out why. I thought maybe it was evaporating or it had been like, you know, melting off the desk. But in fact, it was my coworkers stealing pieces when I wasn't looking (laughs) because they were like, oh, this this is cool stuff. And that led me down a path of there's something to this. Maybe it could be more pretty and more fun to use. And the next thing I knew I was quitting my job. My wife quit her job. And, you know, here we are 20 something years later. So what differentiates your putty? From the run of the mill putty? It used to be the putty came in maybe three or four colors. There was sort of the classic color, I call it coral. Um, and then there were maybe two or three fluorescent colors and a glow in the dark. I wanted those fluorescent colors to be the most fluorescent they could be, to have some kind of magical depth and sparkle to them. I wanted to think about what if it was crystal clear? And you could just, like, it was almost invisible when it melted into a puddle on your desk. Or what if it could be magnetic and crawl over to a magnet by itself? And so over the years, just sort of pursuing those passions, learning chemistry, understanding manufacturing through much trial and error, we figured out how to do those things. And our customers seemed to like it. They responded. And we we started a bit of a, you know, sort of putty renaissance. A lot of different companies have been making putties that are much more pretty and fun to use. And I guess that's a good thing. And you're manufactured here in the U.S., down in in Pennsylvania. Is that correct? That's right. Our factory is, uh, well, originally it was in my my parents' basement. And then it was, (laughs) we started working with uh, disabled individuals who were working at a local work center, a vocational workshop, and have for many years, 12, 15 years now, worked with them to help manufacture our products. And as we grew, we moved from location to location, but now we're in Norristown, which is a county seat just outside of Philadelphia. And we have our factory and warehouse and offices here. My sister is developmentally disabled and she works in the same kind of environment, a sheltered workshop. And so it's really, 
it really actually means a lot to her to have that work. And she's been very anxious this year in that she hasn't been able to go to work and she she misses it. It's been a tough year. So we ended up at our peak working with nine vocational centers around Philadelphia, more than 900 individuals with uh, intellectual and physical disabilities every day, making thinking putty, um, which would come back and we would ship it out all over the world. But under COVID, obviously a lot of that, those facilities have been forced to close. Um, but as soon as they open, you know, we've got a work order for them because the consistency and constancy of work, it just, it brings purpose and it brings um, security to people's day to day. That's very important to me. The uh, original putty was Silly Putty. Right. And Aaron, just help us with our history. Well, Silly Putty came out in the uh, 1950s um, and was advertised first on the Howdy Doody show, which was, of course, the show that every child with a television watched every single weekday. It took off like a rocket once it came to the toy store. I think 1949, it was sort of a thing that scientists had discovered. Um, It's called Silly, by the way, because it's made from silicone. Right? So that's why here. they jumped on silly. So silly to silicone. So it was the thing that chemists would bring to parties. You know how exciting <laughs> chemist parties are. So how did you, you're a software engineer. I'm, I'm assuming you had no chemistry uh-huh. background. No, uh, no. And I would think that entering into an area like that is a little daunting. So how did you, uh, did you go to chemists? Did you learn chemistry? What happened? I knew that the U.S. patent database had recently been scanned and was available on the government website. And being a software engineer, knew how to get through the arcane user interface and just started reading everything I could. Start with Silly Putty, discover it's silicone. What are silicones? How does that work? And then sort of with the fearlessness of youth, making phone calls and calling chemical supply houses and asking them to mail things to my apartment. And um, then they refuse and I have them mail them to work and I smuggle them home and, you know, just just playing around and trying things. I mean, it was a really years and years of trial and error. It still is trial and error. I mean, you know, there's always new things to be discovered. Do you have a secret formula like Coca-Cola does? We definitely have a secret formula. But can you tell tell us what it is? (laughs) I cannot. Because, you know, if I did, I'd have to kill you. (laughs) In the entire audience. Right. Tell us a little bit about what this year has been for you in dealing with COVID and how you're dealing with it and and what you see as your ability to move ahead. To me, COVID has been like the classic stages of grief, you know? <laughs> uh, it, and, and so I remember at Toy Fair um, being at the board meeting of the Toy Association and it was a COVID was something that was happening in China and Hong Kong. It was something that was going to affect supply chains. It was something that companies who were manufacturing overseas were preparing for uh, interruptions. And we were leaving Toy Fair feeling very strong that being a U.S. manufacturer, there were some more opportunities for us, maybe if, if customers had gaps in their supply chain. Then very quickly, March 13th, we got an order to shut down. Uh, because governor of Pennsylvania shut down the state. And so we laid off our staff and we went home and we, well, I, you know, it wasn't a great weekend, but realized that we could do something that mattered um, or helped because we had all of the chemical ingredients on hand to make hand sanitizer. 
And the FDA had recently authorized special rules for emergency hand sanitizer production at the beginning of the crisis. And so I came back on Monday and with some of our engineering staff said, this is what we're going to be doing. And um, we got to work getting bottles, which was actually the hardest thing because it was just total chaos at that moment. But um, by Thursday, so, you know, kind of three business days later, we were cranking out hand sanitizer and distributing it to first responders in the community. And then in doing so, we're able to get an emergency authorization to reopen parts of our factory solely for sanitizer use. But that made me to feel a factory doesn't like to be with lights out, right? Factories are made to run and we needed to do something. And so I think that's what we did. Let me just digress for a minute because I think this is an important piece. It wasn't like you were starting from one or zero when this whole thing hit with Corona. You had had to go through the whole debacle with the tariffs last year. You were one of the few toy companies that were really impacted by tariffs, ironically, because you made your products in the United States but imported some ingredients from China. So you had already gone through some chaos. Actually, it wasn't. We did not import ingredients from China that were affecting our our pricing per se. The problem was that for certain ingredients, it's a global market, and so when you Im- when the balance of product coming into the United States is say seventy percent domestic and thirty percent foreign, and then suddenly there's a tariff on that thirty percent foreign capacity, the domestic producers can't just make that up overnight. And so there's a supply and demand curve. And so you see the prices for the steel that went into our metal tins that are made in Baltimore goes up, or um, the price of silicone, uh, you know, went up when there was the tariff on silicone because there's sort of this. Commodity, global commodity price and materials moving around the world. But as a result of the tariffs, we saw some really significant price increases. It was tough. And here we are in Q4. Where are you guys today? Are you back up and running? What's going What's going on today? So we were permitted to reopen our factory for putty production basically a little more than three months after we were shut down. So it, towards the end of June. We did not get all of our people back, unfortunately. You know, we've invested a lot in people and we're hoping to, but I understand that three months is a long time and some people, you know, they they look for other opportunities and move on. But, um, you know, during that time, we just plowed ourselves into new product development, new product development. And how can we sort of read the zeitgeist of the moment in toys and in children's products in general and um, come up with something new and amazing? So we we are launching a new line of hand sanitizer for children that has layers of color inside the bottle. So it and sparkles and shimmers and it's all FDA, you know, approved. So it's legit, but it it just it looks beautiful. It's pretty and fun to use. Those are sort of my guiding principles. Um, we're rolling out foaming hand soap like uh, that you would have in the bath bathroom at the kitchen or at the bathroom sink that when you dispense it, it dispenses a brightly colored foam. And as you scrub your hands, the color disappears. Kids just really seem to engage with it. I've tested it with all the young people I know, and I'm excited for these products amongst you know many others that we're rolling out uh, so, in this end of year. How long does it take for it to change color? Because one of the things that we've been hearing throughout the pandemic is the time kids spend washing their hands. Is that a way of gauging the time? I cannot make the claim that it will change color exactly when the CDC right. tells you that you are done washing your hands. But I can tell you that it transforms children from doing the thing where they squirt on the soap and they just wash it right off and run out the room because it's the most boring task ever to, oh, can I do that again? Can I dispense it again? Can I try again? If anything, I think it actually works too well. If you're ages three to six, 
uh, mom is watching to make sure you don't use the whole bottle, which is exciting for me because <laughs> I feel like anything we do, you know, that makes children happy, that's that's why we're here. So, Aaron, I, I think you present an example of how an entrepreneur can react to chaos and crisis. It, it seems at the same time trying to do good and at the same time also trying to build your business into new opportunistic ways. Any commentary on the entrepreneur's outlook towards an op- a situation like this? My perspective is generally that you need to meet people where they are. There are all kinds of incredible inventions that hit the market, but they're, in the, they're at the wrong time, or they're in the wrong channel, or uh, maybe they're at the wrong price point. And you know, they won't get traction, and they won't really kind of make a difference uh, for the entrepreneur from a business perspective or for sort of the world of consumer goods because of that. So you, know, you have to read the room, um, but also as a business owner, you realize your business can grow and change in very different ways. I mean, for the first 10 years, when I was making putty under, you know, on my kitchen table and, and making it in my basement. And then when we were working with the disabled individuals at the beginning, we were a promotional products company. You know, we put corporate lo- logos on our tins and we sold to trade shows and meetings and conferences and events. And it was only sort of through a random happenstance that we came to the toy industry um, and came to be a children's toy. Now, sure, you might look at putty and say, this is a children's product. But we were very successful in promotional products for many years. And then and then all of a sudden toys. And then we became a different kind of company. And in two or three years from now, we could be another kind. No one knows. You have to follow where your customers want to lead you. You've also been very innovative in your merchandising. When I go to places like Kip's Toyland in Los Angeles or on the pier in Chicago, you've been very present right at checkout and mm-hmm. in different at different sizes. And and how much would you say you're an impulse purchase, you're a planned purchase? How have you worked with the specialty market, really? Because that's where I see you most to build your business. I love the specialty toy market because it is, it, you know, there are people there who have invested their whole lives into that business. You know, when you're a small business owner, you're running a store, it, it, it's, it's everything for you. And that means you are paying attention to your purchases, to what's moving, what's not. And by engaging with those specialty owners, we've been able to get a lot of great feedback. And we iterate our product line every year. Uh, sometimes every six months, changes to the packaging, move the wording, try something different, let's make a new display. And in doing so, you can't jump to the finish line. You have to iterate your way through it. And the specialty toy stores will give you that feedback if you give them the time and the respect that they deserve because they, you know, they're people who are pouring their whole lives into this. Uh, so that's that's something that we've really engaged in. And uh, it's been, you know, we didn't go in and say, we want to be at the counter, you know, make that happen for us. We said, here's something new and different. And then they started saying, oh, you know, if you have these little ones, then they might move more quickly and we could put them at the counter. Okay, let's build a display. Let's try it, right? Let's see where it goes. Turns out to be successful. Oh, now there's another opportunity. Maybe we can put some of our featured larger products there and connect the dots and et cetera. And we go from there. We like to travel around. We like to visit those stores. And, um, you know, you see merchandising, ways people have merchandised your product that you never would have thought of. And you need to be open to be like, that is a beautiful display you built. I, that's amazing. I can't believe you came in nights and weekends to build this thing out of wood. It's awesome. Are you okay with us, you know, sort of scaling this up and actually making it available to other stores? And of course, people are very generous and they say yes. 
Some of the uh, concerns around e-commerce is that it has not been as good for impulse purchases as uh, physical bricks and mortar retail stores, as you just mentioned, being at the checkout. They didn't have on their list potentially uh, Aaron's putty, but they see it and they pick it up. So how have you taken advantage of e-commerce to move your product? I would say it is definitely a bigger challenge. You want, with e-commerce, you want something, you go get it, and then you come away. You're not really browsing. You're not in a physical space where things are popping into your line of vision and catching your eye. So it's much more challenging. Uh, building a strong email and, and Instagram and Facebook connection with your, your core customers is one way. Developing content that they want to share with their larger personal networks because it's fun and different and exciting is a way of putting that impulse or that sense of, oh, what's that in front of people when they're not sort of happening upon you in a physical space. Um, that's what we've tried to do. This is a golden age for compounds. Really, really not since the, the late 60s and early 70s have we seen so many different compounds out there for play. And at Toy Fair this year in January, if you can cast your mind back that far, at Toy Fair in February in New York, you were showing dough. You've expanded your offerings. Talk a little bit about that, please. I, Land of Dough came into my eye through one of our specialty toy sales reps who found a woman in North Carolina who was making these beautiful cups of play dough with just a very unique packaging and, and artistic style. And she was completely overwhelmed. She could, she was staying up, you know, to the wee hours of the night. She had three small children filling orders on her website. I saw this brand. I knew that it was beautiful. And I also knew exactly where she was because I had been there in that moment of running out and not having enough sleep and like working a job during the day and coming home and making putty at night. And we got to talking and ultimately she ended up transferring Land of Dough to us. And we were able to try and achieve her brand vision, which was an all natural Play-Doh with a natural preservative, with natural colorants, with paper-based packaging with wood implements where everything is compostable and biodegradable and just has a beautiful scent and then physically is just beautiful in a way that dough has never been. And uh, you'll have to check out landofdough.com and see the website to kind of get what I'm saying because you have to see it to believe it. It really is beautiful. It's something that is unique and you you never think of Play-Doh as being giftable, but <laughs> it's absolutely something that somebody would say, hey, Check this out. I don't know what to get you. Here's some dough. Half of our customers are, are adult women, and ah. they're not giving it to their kids. Right, right. Aaron, as you were talking about your initial impulse on this, about your hand manipulation, I was thinking about how popular fidget spinners were. How important is this to human beings, this need to fidget with their hands and fingers? It's funny. People ask me, well, who uses this product? You know, a bank will come in and say that. Who, who uses this product? I'll say people with hands, right? Like, that's it. And I'm inclusive. Like, you know, just if you have hands, you want, you're going to want to use this product. You're going to want to have it in your hands yourself. I remember when it was taking off at work when I was still a software engineer. Uh, all the engineers wanted it. All the graphic designers wanted it. And when I did sort of a pre-sale, like a pool, you know, get in now. All the accounting departments said no. 
And then, you know, two weeks later, when everyone's playing with it and having fun, the accountants are coming over and saying, you have any left? Do you have any extra? <laughs> and of course, they're sitting in front of spreadsheets all day and losing their minds. And the putty just, it helps keep your hands busy. So um, it's just as much an adult need as it is a need for children. I've worked with art therapists over the years with children, and there is something about doing something that is manipulative that actually releases chemicals in your body that help you to calm down and focus. It's not just a fun thing, but it also has a physiological benefit. Personally, I believe that because I have some at my desk every single day. And, you know, the day I get bored of having all of this stuff squeezing around here uh, is the day I know that uh, I need to be retired. <laughs> um, but that day has not yet come. Do you have a feel for what percentage of your consuming public is adult versus child? Well, I think in 2009, it was probably 95% adult. And today it's probably, it's probably 85 or 90% child. There aren't a lot of adult toy stores. And so when you're selling a sort of a toy or a manipulative to adults, there's limited channels for you to reach them um, because you don't, you're not meeting them where they are. You're not fitting into a pre-established channel that sells that sort of thing to grownups. So I had the chance to play with a 25 pound blob of your dough. That was heavy. Uh, on, on live with Kelly and Ryan. You've done some other kind of outrageous marketing stuff to get people to be aware of, of dough. Talk a little bit about what you guys have done that's a little bit off the wall to build awareness and hopefully drive sales. We've done what we call the 100 pound putty ball drop, <laughs> where we take our thinking putty and we throw it off a very high place. So um, the Franklin Institute is the science museum in Philadelphia. We did one there with a special putty that was never available for retail sale, but I had formulated. So it actually dropped from a five-story balcony like a, like a slinky. So it sort of stretched the whole way out in just seconds. And then the second it hit the ground, it sort of unzipped itself from the top down. It was really a sight to see. And there was an atrium filled with a couple hundred people screaming. It was it was really, really fun. We've thrown it off the top of a, uh, a fire ladder, you know, 105 feet. Um, so basically a 10-story building. And of course, surprisingly, it doesn't splat. It bounces. And, right. um, you know, then everyone runs screaming because you don't want to get hit with the 100-pound putty ball when it's bouncing around. You, you probably really, don't. really don't. <laughs> we got away from sort of that grand showman kind of look and got a little more into sort of the story of each putty as our marketing changed over the years. Have you got one putty that's been a bestseller over the years? One, because I've played with a bunch of them. I've got I've got the liquid glass here on my desk. I've played with the light up putty. I've played with glow in the dark putty. Is there one that consistently emerges as your bestseller? Uh, liquid glass. People just love the clear glass. Yeah. They love opening it and showing people how clear it is. It really is really really clear. Right. And um, I would say second is probably magnetic um, because magnets are cool. Nobody really knows how they work. Right. right. And uh, it's invisible forces. Kids love invisible forces. Grownups too. It's, it's literally magic because you don't understand it and you're just wowed by it. That's something I talk about a lot, that a toy that has a wow factor is it doesn't have to be done by technology. It can just be something as simple as a magnet. Where's the aha Where's the moment of discovery or that, that you're too, like you said, that moment of wonder? If the toy has that, sort of everything else is window dressing. You might need it to be in a certain kind of box to fit on a shelf or have a certain kind of branding to get your customer. But if, if it doesn't have a wow inside it, it's not going to really have legs for years and years. 
Are, are you the source of inspiration for all the products or do you ever go outside? I love teamwork. I mean, I would say yes. Like I am the guy who comes up with, we, sh- you know, what, what, here's an idea for product X or Y. But, you know, it's, it's a collaboration. People will come to me, you know, a factory line worker will say, hey, you know, I noticed when it got cold out, it started doing this weird thing. And that's the inspiration for, oh, well, it's that ingredient. And if you change that and do, you know, then you can have something new and amazing. So I like to crowdsource like lots of information, but ultimately it kind of goes through, it goes through the, the uh, food processor that is my brain before <laughs> it comes out as a final product. And what was the inspiration for magnetic putty? Well, I just thought magnets were cool. I watched the movie, The Blob. And it was sort of like a living blob, right? And so, like, how could the putty move on its own? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? And, um, you know, tried a couple things and the effect just wasn't quite strong enough. And then finally, uh, you know, I figured out the secret ingredient and eventually uh, strong-armed someone to make it for me. And then once it was mixed in, we had magic. Now, it seems to me that when you chose to acquire the Play-Doh product, that that was uh, another compound really rationalized to your business. Even the hand sanitizer, again, is uh, chemicals, et cetera. Is your vision for the future of the company, do you see yourself moving into other product categories, or do you think your future is really staying with this kind of chemistry-based play? I think chemistry and formulation and um, all of the sort of regulatory challenges that that entails is something that we are good at. Um, working with color is something that we are good at. I do think that we have ideas and, and concepts we're working on in on a lot of different categories. Um, so we'd like to spread out. You know, Crazy Irons would like to be seen for innovation and wonder, not necessarily compounds. Which leads me to the big question. From your, where you're sitting, high above your putty factory, what do you see as the future of the toy industry? Looking five years out. Well, look, there, there are always children, and children want to play with toys. But I do see changes in how toys are sold. We lost Toys R Us. We're seeing increasing consolidation to uh, online sales and um, also within online sales, sort of that lack of wonder and discovery that you know you need a big tv advertising budget or a you know a really effective tiktok campaign to get an innovative product in front of people's minds because they're not going to discover it in the local stores because the local stores are changing and shifting themselves um, beyond just being sort of pure pure toy stores it's hard to know exactly where we're going to be yeah i can't predict the future but i can say if you are not looking every day to make that uh, sort of shift as to where are we going, then uh, the world will quickly leave you behind. I always say as long as people reproduce and buy stuff for their kids, we'll probably have a toy industry. (laughs) Wherever there's children. I mean, yeah, I I didn't mean to sound despair there. It's, It's changing, but there are kids and kids need toys. And, um, you know, the demographic trends in the United States are that there are equal or as many children for many years to come. We were talking about where the company is going. You did do something innovative this year, which is I think you worked with ThinkFun to create a game, a co-branded game, which is actually a lot of fun using the putty and play with the putty in within the game mechanics. 
Do you see other yes. opportunities like that? So we did a collaboration with ThinkFun. Um, it was a game sort of like the app Flow, where there's different puzzles and you need to make it flow without intersecting different colors together. And um, they came to us and asked if they could license Thinking Putty. For ThinkFun to license Thinking Putty and have us provide the product seemed like a natural fit. Um, and that was a great opportunity to work together and um, led us down a path to create our own game, Ultimate Putty Challenge, um, which was more of a fast-paced family fun game. Um, and I very much enjoy making games um, and have lots of sort of half-finished ones here in the in the putty factory. But um, I would imagine we would cons- continue to do that. And like I said, I like to crowdsource my approach. Um, the more minds, the merrier. I believe the great ideas, they're like cream, they float to the top. And I look forward to collaborating with more people in the toy business, just as, uh, you know, Chris and, and Richard, here we are today. Have you ever experimented with licensing opportunities? We have experimented. Um, we have not yet had any bites. So we'll see. We'll see what the future brings us. Aaron Muterick, Crazy Aaron, you've certainly given me personally a lot of concentrating time as I've played with your putty over the years. And it's it's so great to hear about what you're doing, your work in the community and how you're expanding and growing this very necessary business and, of course, all the innovation. So thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about some top of mind issues in the toy industry. And we've had the pleasure of talking to both Richard Dixon and Kim Colmoni from Mattel. But the big news is that Barbie is having one of her best years ever. She's up about 29% in sales in Q3. And according to the Wall Street Journal, it was the largest quarterly increase posted by Barbie going back at least two decades. So Barbie's on a roll. And Richard, you have some thoughts about why that's happening. I think we really should talk about this. This is no accident. I think Mattel has been working very hard for a very long time to reconnect with girls, particularly American girls. Historically, Barbie was, uh, for a very long time, a Southern California blonde beach girl. As time went on and the American child community began to change and become more of color, as moms became more interested in social issues and how their daughters perceived femininity, et cetera, and she fell into disfavor. I know that you follow a lot of this. Can you, do you can you give us some thoughts on the journey that Mattel has been making? Well, in 1959, Barbie, the teenage fashion model, really had that as an option or being a bride. And fast forward to the rise of the ERA and women's liberation, and Barbie seemed arcane to many people. Jump ahead again uh, to 1985 when... Jill Barad and John Ammerman introduced We Girls Can Do Anything, and that really jump-started the modern era of Barbie. The other thing that happened at that time was that Barbie stopped being just this blonde girl from Willows, Wisconsin, who had moved to California, to being a brand under which any doll that was a fashion doll could fit. I think that was the biggest innovation in opening up the brand. Because then we started to see all of the other ways that the Barbie brand could be expressed that reflected children. And Barbie's always reflected the culture. It's just now that the culture has a little bit caught up to Barbie and Mattel has continued to innovate. They're continuing to push the envelope on fashion. They're continuing to reflect the world girls see around them. And 
Now you've got another generation that grew up with this Barbie from 1985 forward who is much more inclined to be supportive of that and give it to their child. Chris, you know, I'm looking at some revenue summaries here. And uh, in 2013, Barbie did about a billion uh, dollars, about a billion one. And by 2017, had dropped to uh, $840 million. This year, and this is a testament to a lot of the efforts, Barbie's anticipated to do $1.2 billion. So you can see the fall and then the recovery. In looking at some of the reasons, uh, I think that the biggest one is, is relevance. Mattel has really gone out of its way to take positions which are a little edgy. And and I think that the decision to really take on the race issues with a, a very effective vlog, Barbie did in a conversation with another doll that's black, the creatable worlds concept, getting into gender fluidity, and then changing the body types and, and featuring dolls of different colors. I, I think these things went a long way to showing that Barbie was very connected with what's happening in the 21st century. Barbie's always reflected a lot that's going on in the world, and she does so now even more than ever. And I, I do think that the body types and the, the hair colors and the skin tones and all of that under this iconic brand, Mattel has really taken a very aggressive stance at making sure that Barbie is for everyone. And no matter what your sensibility is, no matter what you want to play, you can find a Barbie that looks like you. You can find a Barbie that looks very different from you. There's always something that allows a whole level of self-expression and relating to the doll that's really, really an important part of the Barbie brand. And you think about the number of SKUs that are out there in the Barbie brand, it's very impressive. Well, you know, Chris, I I think a a really interesting aspect of all this is the way moms are now looking at Barbie. We've had a generational change in mothers. These new moms don't appear to have the negative feelings that some of the uh, their older siblings or moms had towards Barbie. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I think among all toys, moms really are a major decision maker when it comes to Barbie. And I think moms can encourage it or discourage it. And it's very powerful. I think so. And I think that a lot of the things that Barbie was criticized for in the past was she's an unrealistic body size. She's only white. She's only blonde. She's very limited. Mattel has addressed all of that head on. The other thing about Barbie, to your point, which I think is really, really important, is unlike other fashion dolls out there, Barbie has always relied on the implicit or certainly the explicit support of moms in giving that to their child and bringing it into the home. And I think that that's something that they have found an ability to do with all of the diversity they've introduced right now. Barbie is no longer seen as limiting in any way, but very much an open-ended play experience, really a blank canvas on which a child can project any feelings that they have. And that's one of the provinces of a humanistic kind of doll. You don't see that with an abstract character when you're looking at a person you are seeing a reflection of yourself. And Chris, I I think there's one other component that's really helping Barbie right now. And that is a lot of little girls, and let's face it, Barbie is a a primarily a girl's product, are lonely right now. They're at home. uh, They're not getting the physical contact they're accustomed to having. They're not having peer activities. A doll in that sense can be a tool 
for acting out socialization. So I think part of it is um, a substitute, not, not a real substitute, but an attempt to provide a substitute for a friend. Absolutely. Dolls have always been friends. And I think that was one of the things that started Barbie back in 1959. Before, before 1959, any doll that was not a baby doll or that was a teenager was a paper doll. They had paper dolls. So here comes Barbie, based on Built Lily from Germany. Here comes Barbie, and suddenly she's a peer. So that was really something that that changed the nature of doll play. So it became peer-to-peer rather than being a mommy. And I think that as Mattel has ridden the waves of 62 years, they've continually tried to re-examine who is Barbie in a little girl's world and how will a little girl relate to her. And importantly, I've, I've always maintained, I think you agree, that there's there's Barbie the doll and then there's the Barbie the the character that lives in every mom and girl's head uh, and uh, is, a, is a real totem for femininity, good or ill, at any particular point in history. One of the things I've said before, and I said it would, when we were talking to Kim Komoni, was that there have been billions of Barbies sold. Everyone is different because it really depends on how the child or the mom or the Barbie player brings that doll to life at any given time. And it's always a reflection of what's going on in their lives. So good job, Mattel. It was no accident. It was no accident. And at 62, she's a unique brand in the toy industry. And I don't see it slowing down for another 62 years. And we're not going to slow down either. This is the Playground Podcast. We're going to keep coming to you. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb. Thank you for listening. We're brought to you by Global Toy Experts and The Toy Guy, and we will see you next time.